All right. My name is Matt Carter. It is good to be back with you today um, here at the Stone. I want to invite you to open up your Bible, if you brought it, to the book of First Peter. <clears throat> to the book of First Peter. We're in chapter 4 today. We're going to begin where we left off in verse 14. So it's First Peter chapter 4, verse 14. And this is, um, and the verse that we're going to look at today, what Peter's going to do is one last time he's going to address the issue of Christian suffering. This is the last thing he says about it. We're going to be, uh, this is the end of chapter four. We'll jump into chapter five. Chapter five is going to go real fast. He doesn't talk about suffering in chapter five. So this is kind of the last thing that Peter says in an entire book on suffering about the issue of Christian suffering. <clears throat> This book has been, it's been really good, honestly, for me personally to preach through because one of the things that I've realized to being on this planet for 44 years is that for the believer, and really for everybody, that suffering is kind of like an, an ocean tide. It's kind of like an ocean tide. There, there are times when the tides of suffering go out and you, ex, you kind of experience an extended period of of, of peace and lack of suffering in your life and those times are wonderful, but it doesn't matter who you are. As, as the saying says, sure as the ocean tide, the tide of suffering will come back into your life. It does to everyone. And what's been so amazing about this book is that Peter teaches us not only how we're supposed to look at this, but how we're to deal with this and, and also how we're to endure through these tides of suffering that inevitably come to all of us. And so today, Excuse me, if you're taking notes, here's real quickly, I wanna hit this. What I'm realizing through the teaching of 1 Peter is that there's basically three kinds of suffering that a, that a Christian will endure in their lives. There's three kinds of suffering that a Christian will endure in their lives. Here's the first one. Um, talked about it last week, but, and we've talked about it really all through 1 Peter, but you will suffer because of the name of Christ. You'll suffer because you are a believer. All through the New Testament, whether it's Peter, Paul, Jesus, over and over again, almost every writer in the New Testament explains this, that because, of, because you bear the name of Christ, you will receive a certain amount of persecution and insult because of him. And so that's coming to all of us. <clears throat> There's a second kind of suffering. We're gonna hit on it a little bit today, but it's, and, and I want you to hear this clearly, but it's the suffering that comes into our lives because God is refining us and disciplining us. You know, one of the promises, church of the Bible, <clears throat> is that God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so what that means <clears throat> is from the moment of your salvation until the moment that you breathe your last breath, God is at work in everything that happens in your life to use all of it, good and bad, for the purpose of you looking more like Jesus Christ. And so whether you're going through cancer, whether you're dealing with depression, whether you're having a hard semester, whether you're having a difficult marriage, um, no matter what kind of suffering you're going through, financial problems, it does not matter. The promise for the believer is that God is at work in that suffering. And he is at work in that suffering in your life for your good so that you look more like Christ. And there's a, but there's a third kind of suffering. There's a third kind of suffering. This is what Peter's gonna address today. And it's the suffering that a believer will experience because of the sin in their life. 
the suffering that a believer will experience because of the sin in their life. You can experience suffering because of the name of Christ. You can experience suffering because God's refining you or disciplining you, but you can also experience the suffering because you have rebelled against the commands of God in your life and you are experiencing the earthly consequences of those sin. And that's what Peter's gonna talk about. And so let's jump in. First Peter 4, 14. <clears throat> Excuse me, let's pick up where we left off last week. <clears throat> Peter said, if... You are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Okay, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, what Peter does, real quick, we talked about last week, but what Peter reminds us is, hey, if you're going out there and you're suffering because you are a believer, because you're a Christian, you're blessed, because what happens is the spirit of God is gonna rest on you, it's gonna comfort you in a very unique way because you're being persecuted for the name of Jesus. But in the very next sentence, what Peter does is it's almost like he reads my mind. <clears throat> because I don't know about you, but when I hear that, that, okay, if I suffer because of the name of Jesus, I'm blessed, that's awesome. But one of the things that goes through my mind immediately is, okay, that's great, but what happens if I'm suffering because I did something really stupid? which has been the typical reason I've suffered throughout my life. It's like if I'm suffering because of my stupidity, my sin, my issues, what does that mean if I'm suffering because of those things? And so let's read it, 14 again. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And then he says, but, he says, but let none of you, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or a meddler, okay? There's four things that he addresses of ways that you can kind of suffer because of your own issues. He's saying, hey guys, listen, important safety tip. There, you're gonna have enough suffering in your life because of the name of Jesus. You're gonna have enough suffering in your life because God is going to refine you and, and make you look more like Christ until the day you die. And so the last thing you wanna do is go out there and sin and bring more suffering into your life. And then he, again, he lists these four things, these four specific ways and sins that you can commit that will bring suffering in your life. I wanna walk through those really quickly. Look at the first one, 1 Peter four fifteen. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer. Let none of you suffer as a murderer. It's an interesting statement. He says, don't, don't suffer unnecessarily because you're a murderer. Now, what does that mean? Why does he use that example? Why does he use that example? Here's the thing. Um, the word murderer there in the Greek that the New Testament was written in, it's a word that means the intentional taking of human life. The intentional taking of a human life. Now obviously that can refer to homicide. That can refer to murder in the way that we think about it. <clears throat> but in our context today, it can also refer to abortion. And I wanna speak today um, this point from that perspective of abortion for a couple of reasons. Number one is that the vast majority of you in this room hopefully will never commit homicide, amen? That's kind of the hope for y'all. I know you might be tempted to kill your roommate. That's all right, God will forgive you for that, but let's not go through it. So the vast majority of you will not commit homicide in your life, hopefully, and so that's kind of the first reason I wanna address abortion very quickly this morning. And then the second thing is today, believe it or not, is, is the Sanctity of Life Sunday that all throughout the country churches are celebrating and the text that we are walking through happens to fall on the place where the scripture says, do not suffer for intentionally taking a human life. Now, 
I know the debate out there in the world is, is whether or not life begins at conception. Let's talk about that for a second. That's kind of the debate, whether or not life begins at conception. And so if you're here today and you're not a believer, or if you're just kind of, if you ever wondered, like, why are Christians so up in arms about abortion? Why, why do Christians, the pro-life movement, if you will, that's political, we're not, but why do Christians, why do we freak out so much about the issue of abortion? And this is the reason. It's because the claim of the Bible, the claim of the Bible, which is what we believe is God's word and what we base our life on and what we believe is true. The claim of the Bible is that life does begin at conception. As a matter of fact, the, 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 psalm, the psalmists even say that at the moment of a child's conception, it receives its eternal soul. That's why I believe you'll see um, children that have been aborted. I think you'll see children that have been miscarried. I think you'll see them in heaven because they receive, according to scripture, their eternal soul at the moment of their conception. And so that's one thing. The the scripture teaches us that life does begin at conception. And then beyond that, the Bible teaches us that, that God is actually the one that's at work forming and knitting that little life in its mother's womb. And so that is the reason that we believe what we believe. And so biblically speaking, not politically speaking, but biblically speaking, abortion is the ending of a human life. And so Peter makes this statement. <clears throat> He's like, okay, look, you got enough suffering in your life, so the last thing you, you wanna do is you wanna, you wanna bring more suffering because of the intentional ending of a human life. What, what is he trying to say? What does he mean by that? Well, if you look at it in terms of homicide, think about this, you know, if a person commits a murder, a person murders someone and then, and then after, at some point after they commit the murder, the person realizes the sinful nature of that act and they realize the horror of that act and, and they beg, they repent and they beg God's forgiveness. Here's the question. Will God forgive them of that sin? <clears throat> the answer is absolutely. God will forgive them of that sin. Does God remove the eternal consequences of that sin of murder? The answer is Yes. If they ask for God's forgiveness, they repent of that sin, God will remove the eternal consequences of sin. But what Peter's saying here in his point is is just because God has forgiven that person and removed the eternal consequences of that sin, that does not mean that that person's not going to incur the earthly consequences of that sin. Okay, the person has committed a crime. It's not a sin against God necessarily alone, but it's also a crime against humanity. And so they're gonna go to prison. And so they bring suffering upon themselves because of that intentional ending of a human life. The same is true for abortion. You know, if a woman has an abortion and she asks God forgiveness for that, will God forgive her? The answer is absolutely he will. There is no sin that is bigger than the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is one of them. God completely forgives him. He, he places his blood over her life. He takes that sin. He casts it as far as the east is from the west. And so when he sees that woman, he doesn't see her past sins. He just sees the blood of his son. And he doesn't, the scriptures doesn't even remember that sin any longer. But, but what women who've had abortions have shared with me is that although they feel the deep forgiveness and love of their heavenly father, there's always the earthly consequences of that decision. And some women carry the weight or the guilt of that decision around with them the rest of their lives. Okay, and that's kind of what Peter's saying. 
He's saying, look, you're gonna have enough suffering in your life because you're a believer. You're gonna have enough suffering in your life because God is gonna allow that stuff in your life to refine you and discipline you and make you look more like Christ until the day you die and, and go into heaven with him. And so the last thing you wanna do is incur more suffering in your life because of your sin. He goes on. He says, but none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief. I'm not gonna talk about that. It's the same concept. He's like, same concept of murder. If you steal something, um, God can forgive you of that, but you're gonna incur the earthly consequences. But I wanna take a little more time on this next thing because it's a little more applicable to us. Peter says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. Well, that's an interesting phrase. We don't use it in the English. And so I looked it up in the Greek. What is he saying here? Well, it's a word that means this. It's a word that means... Um, It's a person that commits a crime against your community that will incur consequences from the government. And so Peter's saying, hey, don't bring unnecessary suffering into your life because you're breaking the laws of the land. That's what he's saying right there. And so basically it's it's a biblical argument for Christians obeying the laws of the land. That's what this is saying. For example, like it's tax season right now. And if you kind of cruise through the semester and you don't pay your taxes and the government levies your wages or, or puts you in prison or whatever, listen, you are not suffering because of the attack of the enemy in your life. You're suffering because you didn't pay your taxes. That's what Peter's saying. So if, if you go out there and you get um, four or five traffic tickets or speeding tickets. Don't walk up to your friends and say, man, I am just under spiritual attack right now in my life. Oh, you're not. You're suffering because you were driving like an idiot and you got your license taken away. And that's what Peter's talking about. That's his point. Saying you got enough suffering in your life. So obey the laws of the land. You won't suffer. And then let's look at the last thing he says because it's it's a pretty interesting point. I'm gonna talk about that a little more because I think this probably applies to even more of us. In verse 15, he says, but let, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. He says, the intentional taking human life, theft, not obeying the laws of the land. And the last thing he says, but let none of you suffer, murder, thief, evildoer, or as a meddler, as a meddler. Now, why that's interesting is because the word meddler, it's, it, it comes from the Greek word allotropiskopos. Now, who cares about that except for this, is that's the only time in the entire Bible that word shows up. It's the only time it's there. And I read a ton of commentators and all of them said the same thing is that that word shows up nowhere else in Greek literature. And so what it, what it seems like Peter did is he combined a couple of words. He combined the Greek word alatrios, which means belonging to another. Hang with me, I'll explain this. Belonging to another. And he combined it with the Greek word episkopos, which means looking into. And so because this shows up nowhere else in the Bible, nowhere else in Greek literature, it's entirely possible that what Peter did is through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he made this word up because it's a concept that applies kind of uniquely to you and to me. And so loosely, here's what this word, allotripiscopos, that Peter made up, here's what he's trying to say. It basically says, again, uh, don't look into something belonging to another. That's kind of the literal translation, but I think loosely what he's saying here is don't stick your nose into places it doesn't belong and therefore bring consequences because you're sticking your nose in a place that doesn't belong. That's like the Matt Carter translation right there. 
And I really do think that's what it means because I've, I found this verse, Proverbs 26, 17, I think shed some light on what Peter's saying here. Don't turn there, just, I wanna read it to you. Proverbs 26, 17, this is, this is an awesome verse. Some of my favorite new verses in the Bible. Check this out. Proverbs writer says, whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Whoever meddles in a quarrel that's not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears that's passing by. So a little homework tonight, here's what I want you to do. When you go home today and tonight, I want you to take a walk around your neighborhood, apartment complex, dorm, campus, whatever. And I want you to do something. I want you to look around and I want you to find somebody that's walking a dog, preferably a really big one. Somebody that's a stranger, you've never seen them before, but they're walking their dog. And all I want you to do is I want you to run up really fast and take both your hands and grab both those dogs' ears by the hand and pull on them real hard and then take off. Now, here's, let me just ask you a question. Will that action bring suffering into your life? The answer to the question is yes. A couple things are probably gonna happen. One is that dog is gonna go bananas. And two, you're probably gonna get beat up, right? That's, that's gonna happen because you injected yourself into a situation you probably shouldn't have. That's, that's what Peter is trying to say to you and to me today, is that we don't want to place ourselves, put ourselves, inject ourselves, insert ourselves into a situation that has nothing to do with us in a way that it's going to bring consequences into our life. That's what Paul's talking about. Again, don't turn there, but Paul, there's just a couple of verses that Paul says in First and Second Thessalonians, and I've never quite understood them, and kind of till this week, and then all of a sudden it starts making sense based on what Peter's saying. It's a couple of verses that we in our culture have completely thrown out the window. Let me read them to you. First Thessalonians 4, 11. Paul is speaking to Christians. Let's go ahead and put it up. And he says, aspire to live quietly. He's speaking to Christians here. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In 2 Thessalonians 3.11, Paul says, we fear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. In other words, Paul was hearing that these people, they weren't just going about their lives, living quietly, aspiring to live this quiet, godly life. They weren't really working hard, but they were just inserting themselves into all these different situations. They were being busybodies, he says. And he says in verse 12, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Christ Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now, this is not me talking, guys. This is the Bible, so if you don't like these, this just take it up with God. What, what, the, what the call of the Scripture seems to be is that Christians are not to be potsters. That is, believers, we're to mind our own business and not insert ourselves in places we shouldn't and cause suffering in our lives. Now, make no mistake, Make no mistake, there, there are certain things that we know for a fact that the Bible calls us to insert ourselves into. There, there are certain things, biblically speaking, that we know for a fact that as Christians we're supposed to fight for. Racial injustice, the plight of the weak, 
Depressed, widow, orphan, unborn, the protection of women from harm. There, there are certain things in our culture that we have a biblical obligation to stick our noses into, even if it incurs consequences. But here's the thing, guys. My goodness, it seems to me that we have allowed the pendulum to swing so far to the other end of the spectrum that we have absolutely thrown out First and Second Thessalonians' call to aspire to live quietly and mind our own affairs. All you gotta do is look at Twitter and Facebook. That's all you gotta do. And you'll see Christians that they're injecting themselves into, inserting themselves into and arguing about every issue under the sun, vast majority of which have absolutely no eternal significance. And even the ones that are arguing and fighting for things that do have eternal significance, what I'm noticing is that, is that so many people that claim the name of Christ are doing it with such anger and hatred and vitriol that you cannot distinguish them. You cannot distinguish between them and the world. And guys, I've thought about it a lot the last few weeks. I've been on Twitter for uh, 10 years. I got onto it in 2008, and I've made the decision that I absolutely hate Twitter with, with, with an, like a, a purple passion. I hate it with all my heart. And the reason I hate it, it kind of hit me literally two weeks ago why I hate Twitter. is because the Christians on there are so mean. I expect people that don't know Jesus to be mean. I expect people that do not have the Holy Spirit to be mean. I, I expect it. The Bible says it's gonna happen. Um, what distinguishes us? What distinguishes us as believers? You remember what the Bible said, like the world will look at us and know that we're Christians? Y'all remember what it is? Somebody shout it out. Love. And so we have the Holy Spirit, which means God lives in us. God lives in us, he's inside of us. And so because the Holy Spirit lives in us, then what's gonna happen because God lives in us is is the Holy Spirit will bear fruit. We don't have to try real hard to produce fruit. The Holy Spirit's gonna bear fruit. It's gonna produce fruit in our lives and we bear it. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, scream gentleness, self-control. You open up Twitter and somebody makes some comment and then, the, and, then, and then you make the mistake of reading the replies. And then the first reply is, you know, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life, you stink. And then the person responds back, no, you stink. And then the, the, the other person responds, um, well, you're like the most horrible person in the world. And like, no, you are the most horrible person in the world. No, well, you're going to hell. No, no, you're, no, you're going to hell. And then you think, who are these people that are so mean until you look at their bio? And you click on their bio and it says, Sue Smith, lover of Jesus, dot, 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 soccer mom, right? And so that's why I love Instagram. I love Instagram. When I, I got an Instagram this summer, I love it. It's my happy place. And all I did, I'm like, I'm not following pastors anymore. I'm not following any politicians. I'm t- anybody that's like being mean, I'm not following. So I got on my wife's Instagram feed and I followed all like her friends. And I love Instagram because you click on Instagram and the first thing you see, it's like a latte, right? <laughs> 
It's just a latte, and you're like, oh, man, that's so, that's so comforting. And then, like, you scroll down a couple things, and, and you see, like, a baby's face smiling at you. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. It's a baby's face. And you scroll down some more, and you see, like, a tofu salad that Aaron Ivy made for lunch, you know, and, like, it looks so good. And you scroll down, and it's like this couple that's in love, and they're taking a selfie by, but in a sunset, and you're like, ah, oh, love Instagram, right? But if you think about it, it's really kind of biblical. Like Instagram's kind of biblical, you know? Because 1 Thessalonians 4.11, let's bring that bad boy up. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Drink some lattes. Smile at some babies. Eat some tofu salad. Fall in love. Take pictures in the sunset. Read your Bible. Tell people about Jesus. Die and go to the house. Doesn't that sound good? That's what Peter's saying to us. You're gonna have enough suffering in your life. You're gonna have enough suffering in your life. And so the last thing you wanna do is bring suffering in your life because you're a troublesome meddler, as one translation says. Now, I'm almost done here. Um, but look at verse 17. It's, it's an interesting thing he kind of throws in here at first. It looks like this really dire warning, but the more you look at it, the more it's kind of comforting what he's saying, and, and I'm not gonna talk about it much. But next verse, like, don't suffer for all this stuff. And then in verse 17, watch what he says. First Peter 4, 17, <clears throat> he says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Peter said, it's time, to, it's time for, for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those that do not obey the gospel of God? And, it, and, it, and if, if the righteous is scarcely, scarcely saved, he's quoting Proverbs here, if the righteous is scarcely saved, then what will become of, of the ungodly and the sinner? That last phrase there, if the righteous is scarcely saved, he's not saying that He's not saying that, that God can barely save you. His point is, is look, he's talking about that God's gonna complete the good work in you until the day of Christ. The, the, the crazy problem about being a Christian is the Holy Spirit will not let you stay in sin. The problem about being a Christian is, is that there's a promise of God on your life that he will not let you go until you turn from your sin and you let go of it and you walk towards God. That's the pesky thing about being a Christian. And if you don't do that, if you don't repent of your sin, if you don't turn from your sin, then God will do whatever it takes to get you to turn from your sin. He will bring the discipline of the Lord into your life so that you will turn from your sin. That's what Peter's talking about. The judgment begins with us right now. That's what he means. You and I are not gonna receive any eternal judgment. On the day that Christ comes back and the nations are judged, you and I are covered with the blood of Jesus. You will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You will receive no condemnation because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's great news. But what Peter's saying is, hey, there is a judgment between now and that day. And what that means is that God is going to go in, work in your life, making you look like Jesus no matter what. Real quickly, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. Listen, Paul talks about this. He says, but when we are judged, but when we are judged 
by the Lord, we are disciplined. You see that? This judgment for us is never eternal judgment. It's always discipline. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so God's gonna allow you, Christian, don't let anybody ever tell you differently because what that just said is God is gonna allow you to go through temporary pain in your life so that you are refined to look more like Jesus so on that day you will not be condemned with the world. You'll just hear, well done. And you'll spend eternity in heaven. Hebrews twelve seven, the writer of Hebrews says, it is for discipline that you endure. And watch what he says next. He says, God is treating you as sons. And so when the discipline of the Lord comes in your life, God is not punishing you. He's treating you as a son. For what son is there whom this father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you never see the discipline of the Lord in your life, something's wrong. Either you're, you're walking real holy and that's awesome, or you're not a son. Verse nine, he says, beside this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and lived? Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. The judgment of the Lord starts with us. If you have sin in your life, he will discipline you. It is for your good so that you would share in his holiness. Not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And here's the thing. Here's a thesis sentence for the book of Peter. When suffering comes and it will come, Rejoice, because God is all in it. And it's for your good. And that's why Peter says the last thing he says in the book of 1 Peter about suffering. Let me read it and we'll land the plane here. 1 Peter 4, 19. Last thing Peter says about suffering. He says, therefore, that word therefore, he's saying because God is at work in all of our suffering." We suffer because the name of Christ, we're blessed. Any other thing that goes wrong in our lives, God is at work in it, making us look more like Jesus. Therefore, watch what he says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter says, look, if you're suffering today, here's, here's what I want you to do. Trust God. Trust God. That phrase right there, entrust your soul, entrust their souls to a faithful creator, that's the exact same word, phrasing that Jesus used when he hung on the cross. He hung on the cross, he was shedding his blood, paying the penalty of all of our sin so that there would be no eternal condemnation for us. And the very last words that came out of his mouth before he died was, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. 
If there's anybody in the universe that I can entrust my soul to, if there's anybody in all the world, in all the universe that I can entrust this soul to God in the last moment of my life and the last thing I'm ever gonna say in my last breath, God, I'm saying this, God, I entrust my spirit to you. I don't think it's any accident that Peter uses that phrase because what Peter's saying, look, he's saying, if Jesus entrusted his soul to God at the moment of his death, then we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we can trust our souls to God throughout every moment of our life. You know, this, um, <clears throat> this month, I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak without hyperbole. I thought about this a long time. I, this last month, the last really kind of month and a half has maybe like the worst month and a half of my whole life, suffering-wise. Um, it's definitely in the top two or three. I mean, it's, it's right up there in the running. And um, it started out with something that I thought was a pretty big deal, and then, and then I realized after the suffering got real serious that it wasn't really a big deal at all. But like on December 7th, you know, y'all know I coached football for my son's team. We lost state championship by, by six points, and that was like a big deal on December 7th. And then I realized a few days later that it's not really a big deal at all. Um, and I haven't shared this with anybody but elders and some close friends, but um, I can't remember the day, but I think it was about a week later, I got diagnosed with melanoma, um, which if y'all are wondering what this thing on my ear is, if you can see it, that's, that's not a gauge, that's a, or, or an ear, you know, that they had to cut some stuff out of my ear. Melanoma is a really aggressive form of skin cancer. That's bad news. Good news is they caught it really, really early. It was early stage, and so they just kind of cut it out. The margins were clear. They think I'm good. But I went through a 24-hour period where I didn't, I didn't know the staging, and the staging is everything with melanoma. If it's, if it's early stage, you, pre, you know, good chance you won't ever see it again. If it's late stage, it's super, super aggressive. And so I went through a 24-hour period where I didn't know the stage, and so that was really hard. And I, I was just, I got the call, and I was kind of in shock, and so I texted Jennifer, hey, there's a little spike, it's melanoma, and then I was gonna call her. And, um, and my daughter saw the text, and then she told my, my little guy, Sammy, who's 12, and it just was a rough day around the house. And, and, um, and so then that, that was kind of the, went through that for a couple weeks, and then, and then something even kind of worse happened after that. And one of my dear friends, um, fathers in the ministry, went through probably one of the, if not the most, difficult times of suffering in his life and I've walked through that with him and that was a nightmare. I've just run the gamut of emotions over the last month and a half, fear, anger, hopelessness. Thought about quitting the ministry. And one of the things I did through throughout this time when I was just not doing well is I got my iPhone and um, I made a playlist of all the all the songs that I used to listen to, Christian songs I used to listen to back in the 90s when, when I first came to Christ. I called it my first love playlist. Like all these old songs that y'all would laugh at because they're so cheesy and stuff. And um, I would just get in the car and listen to them. And one of the songs said this, 
said, when our hearts begin to fall and our stability grows weak, Jesus meets our needs if we only believe that where there is faith, there is a voice calling, keep walking, because you're not alone in this world. Where there is faith, there is a peace like a child sleeping, hope everlasting in he who is able to bear and he's able to heal every hurt in our heart. What is a wonderful, powerful place where there's faith. And I'm telling you guys, the only thing, the only thing that has kept me from losing my mind over the last month is that I have faith, which is the same faith that Jesus had. And it's this, that in the midst of my suffering, I can entrust my soul to God. I can trust him. He's a faithful creator. So there's two kinds of people here today. There's people that the tide of suffering is out. And you're going through an extended period of peace in your life. Walk in holiness. Don't bring suffering in your life because you're sin. If you're in a place of temptation right now where you're looking at sin, thinking, man, that looks good, turn around and walk away. Don't suffer because of that. Enjoy the peace. Enjoy the peace of God that he's given you that's a gift. But for others of you, the tide of suffering for a lot of different reasons, it's kind of come on in. And there may be even some of you in this room today that are, that are this close from just getting knocked over by it. Have faith. Have faith. He is a faithful creator. Trust in him today. All right, let's pray. You know, I want to pray for anybody in this room that, that is here today or anybody on the sound of my voice that's here today that right now you are, you're walking in sin, but you're, you're a Christian. Let this serve as a warning to you, as, as a loving warning by your heavenly Father. He won't let you walk down that road forever. It's a promise. And so let today be the day where you repent and you, and you offer him your life for the rest of your life because he's a good father. There's those of you in this room that are getting washed over and the waves of the tide of suffering is hitting you and it's hitting you hard. Just hold on. Keep walking. You're not alone in this world. He's got you. He sees. He knows. He's going to hold you up. He's going to get you through it. He's preparing you for the day where you breathe your last and you will see his face. It'll all be worth it. Father, we love you. I thank you that even in crazy months like I've walked through,
that there is a rock that I can stand on. I cannot be shaken. And you are that rock. I love you. I praise you. I thank you for who you are and what you've done. We ask all these things today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand.